A reading from the second letter of Paul to the Corinthians. I know a person in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. I know that such a person, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows was caught up into paradise and heard things that are not to be told, that no mortal is permitted to repeat. On behalf of such a one, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. But if I wish to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think better of me than what is seen in me or heard from me, even considering the exceptional character of the revelations. Therefore, to keep me from being too elevated, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I appealed to the Lord about this, that it would leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. So I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities for the sake of Christ. For whenever I am weak, then I am strong. The word of the Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So a few weeks ago, as we were considering St. Paul's letter to the Corinthians, we were struck by Paul's eschatological hope that he had this tenacious ability to remain in joy and hope for the world that is to come, how in the midst of this continuous, ongoing, and brutal suffering that has left his body a mess of scars and brokenness and his mind a fragile and shattered mess, somehow he maintains this bright-eyed hope in the resurrection, in the renewal of all things. And if you were with us just a few short weeks ago, you, you remember that I wondered out loud if our lives maybe aren't marked by the hope that Paul had because we have failed to embrace the weakness and suffering that he so embodied. This morning, I think we have our answer. St. Paul is continuing to press into a form of being that has subsequently been called being a, a fool for Christ. This is the type of argumentation that he is having with his Corinthian readers. And if you remember, the Corinthians have been so enamored with spiritual power and ecstatic experiences and celebrity charm that exists in their so-called super apostles. So much have they had their imaginations hooked by the glitter and gleam that they've begun to question Paul's authority in their lives. That he maybe is not really an apostle. He maybe doesn't really speak Christ's gospel and live in Christ's authority. 
And so here in chapter 12, Paul begins to tell the Corinthians about a spiritual experience. But again, because Paul is such a masterful arguer, and he's so subtle in the way that he sort of moves in and out of his jabs of this community, he's speaking in the third person, but he's talking about himself. He's talking about his own spiritual experience where he was caught up to the third heaven. And he uses the third person as a way of subtly jabbing at the super apostles who have based their ministries on power encounters and mystic spiritual experiences. By contrast, Paul has held his encounter privately since it happened 14 years ago. And even now he's telling it as if it happened to a nameless person that he knows. And even now he's describing it as an experience that finds its footing in the mind of God rather than Paul's own capacity. Did you see how many times he kept saying, was it in the body or out of the body? I don't know. Only God knows. Did he climb up to the gates of paradise because of his own spiritual insight? No, he tells us that he was caught up. Is his apostleship rooted in his ecstatic experiences? Not at all, because the things that he heard are inexpressible and are things which no one is permitted to tell. This is absolutely rhetorical genius. These super apostles won't shut up about their experiences, as if these experiences give them legitimate authority in the church. And yet here Paul is saying, my spiritual encounter of being caught up into paradise was so glorious, so beyond human experience, that I literally can't even talk about it. You see what he's doing? He's cutting out the reason for sharing these things, which is pride, while at the same time revealing that his own experience so far surpasses the experiences of these so-called super apostles. Essentially, you want to know the people that have truly had an encounter of the divine life, people who were pulled up to heaven out of their own bodies to encounter mysteries unutterable? You'll know them paradoxically because they'll never be able to tell you about these things. No blogs, no book deals, no movie franchise. They keep it hidden in their own hearts. In fact, the story that Paul tells next cuts completely against the Corinthians' idea of spiritual heroes, and I dare say our own. Paul tells them that so outlandish was his experience of being caught up in the Spirit that he was given a thorn in his side to keep him from being, as our translation said this morning, elevated or conceited, as other translators have put it. This is not the ending that we want, right? The stories that we tell, the testimonies that we gravitate toward are the ones where the powerful pastor undergoes the horrible ordeal but presses on in prayer and overcomes in a glorious victory. You know the kinds of stories I'm talking about? That's what we want, the ones that end really well and sort of get tied up really easily. There's a great scene in the show Arrested Development, which if you haven't seen it, uh, I don't know how to catch you up on it, but there's this very dysfunctional family called the Bluth family, and they build homes, but they never really seem to be able to do it because they're constantly misusing the money that's been invested in their company. So here's this dysfunctional family, and they're hoping to shore up investors by building up a new model home. And Michael, who's the only sane one of the family, has tried to be realistic about the building timeline but somehow his blowhard brother Job is in charge, and he thinks he can get away with building a fake house 
in order to convince investors to keep their money with the family company. So here they are at the ribbon cutting, and they have barely leaned up a shell of a house. In fact, when they go to cut the ribbon, the ribbon was the thing that was holding all of the walls together, and the whole thing just collapses. But before that happens, Job comes cabling down from a helicopter wire with a wireless mic in hand saying, when I said we could build a house in two weeks, my brother wasn't optimistic it could be done, but I wouldn't take wasn't optimistic it could be done for an answer. And then, of course, the house collapses. I think this is a parable of the folly of much of American Christianity in our time. We want leaders who won't take, wasn't optimistic it could be done for an answer, right? We want leaders who will go out and claim things for the kingdom and press on until they achieve their own goals. But is this how Paul describes his ministry? Is it how he describes his own prayer life? Quite the opposite. Paul listens in prayer, and he very much takes no for an answer. And he moves on from there. Now, there's been a lot of speculation over the centuries about what Paul's thorn in the side could have been. Was it some sort of sexual temptation, spiritual warfare, a physical ailment? This is not an entirely unimportant question, but I think it can easily distract us from the main point, which is that Paul, in submitting to the divine will, models himself on Christ, who also willingly, beautifully takes no for an answer. As he prays in the garden, asking his father if the cup of suffering he is about to drink can be removed. And this, of course, is exactly Paul's point. The super apostles that the Corinthians have become so enamored with have modeled themselves on the gurus of their day, and all the attention was directed back at themselves and their own incredible experiences. Paul, on the other hand, obscures himself as he puts Christ at the center of all that he says and all that he does, and he only inserts himself into the conversation when his own weakness and suffering can serve to corroborate the gospel message with which he has been entrusted. The only time you really see Paul stepping into the light is to show that his suffering matches with the message of the gospel. Because it's a message, by the way, about a God who embraces weakness as an expression of humility and love. And here, too, is exactly the point. Christ could have come as a guru, tossing out ecstatic spiritual experiences left and right, wowing people with his charisma and spiritual power, but he doesn't. He enters the world completely unheralded, lives most of his life in anonymity, and then dies the death of a loser in the midst of his enemy to whom he had given himself in love. This is why Paul has no patience for the super apostles. It's because they have failed to embrace Christ's cruciform kingship and the gospel message of his life, death, and resurrection. This is what marks out a true apostle of the gospel, according to Paul. But what about us? What does Christ's power being made perfect in weakness have to do with us? It begins in the Christian rites of initiation. Baptism models this weakness for us. 
As the theologian John Danielu has so eloquently captured for us in his book, The Bible and the Liturgy, the early church practices surrounding baptism all pointed to a deliverance that the catechumen, the one who was about to be baptized, could not accomplish for herself. It was a deliverance that was coming from outside. We retain this in our own baptismal rites today. We anoint the baptized with the oil of the Spirit, and we mark them with the sign of the cross as an exorcism. And it's an embodied way of saying that we have all been held captive by death and the devil. And yet in the cross of Christ, death and the devil have been defeated. And so we can be liberated. And the baptized person is then ritually brought through the waters of judgment and death and brought forth into the resurrection life of Christ. Do you see that if you are a baptized person, your entire life is rooted in this power that is perfected in weakness? When Satan finally jumped the shark and made his move to kill God, Christ embraced weakness, and what resulted? Christ defeated death and sealed Satan's destruction. Your life was conceived in this power perfected in weakness. I can't think of a better way to sum up what it means to be a Christian. But just as the super apostles modeled themselves on powerful gurus rather than on Christ, we too are tempted to model ourselves on anything other than this display of weakness in the cross. The identities, the, the forms to mold us that are up for auction are manifold. There are so many ways that we try to build an identity for ourselves to avoid the scandal and weakness of Christianity. I just want to highlight two of them that seem particularly tempting in our age. The first is an identity rooted in ideological purity. We live in an age that is polarizing faster than you can say democratic socialism or right-wing nationalism, don't we? In a world that has become unmoored from its own past or from any sort of objective truth, the rigidity of fundamentalism is now infecting every corner of our conversations, and ideological purity has become our standard in one form or another. And it's becoming tempting to be like Job and to not take wasn't optimistic it could be done for an answer. It's tempting to demand ideological purity as the key card for entrance, but is that what baptism displays for us? Did Christ take on human flesh to direct us toward ideological purity? No. As the writer of Hebrews points out to us, a body was prepared for Christ that he might embrace weakness and be both the priest and the victim, that his body would be the reality to which the shadow of the Old Testament law pointed, that his flesh ripped open on the cross would be the curtain ripped apart that we might enter the Holy of Holies and draw near to God with a sincere heart. That's why Christ took on flesh. That's what baptism is an initiation into. Now, of course, if you're a Christian, you need to know what you believe. You need to work to understand the teachings of the church, particularly in our day and age, the teachings on the moral life. But you must remain equally clear that you will not be saved by your ideological purity. You are saved by the sacrifice that was presented in the crucified body of Christ. Say it again. Amen. The second identity, if you could call it that, 
that I think is particularly tempting in our age is one that is rooted in comfort. And these things are intertwined, by the way. Our need for ideological purity and our need for comfort. Because again, our culture has been so caught off, cut off from history, from being rooted in place, and our family structures have been so decimated that seemingly nothing remains stable. You don't have to stay in the same city, the same church, the same family. You don't even have to stay in the same body anymore. And as a result, we are at fever pitch levels of anxiety as a society, and we are essentially like one giant toddler trying to self-soothe. And we end up seeking to be as comfortable as possible. Whether it's financial security or distracting ourselves with sex or doling ourselves with sugar and alcohol or spending insane amounts of money on the right kind of car or whatever, it is tempting to feel the coldness of space and like a newborn baby demand to be swaddled and have our limbs held close again like we're back in the womb. But is this what our baptism displays for us? Did you receive the oil of chrism to be comfortable? Did Christ take on human flesh that he might be more comfortable? No. You were baptized into his death, which means that you were brought into his holocaust, his sacrifice. You are not called to comfortableness, but to carry your cross and follow Christ. And I'll say there's an unavoidable individuality here. Just as Paul had his own particular thorn in the flesh, for each one of us as individuals, there is a particular unique way in which we are called to take up our cross and follow Christ. But I think most of us are used to thinking primarily as individuals, and I would rather flip that on its head and have us primarily think about how we need to ask these questions of ourselves as a parish. I'm not going to answer any of these, but here's some questions to think about. How can God's power be made manifest and perfected in our collective weakness? Where have we as a parish been reliant upon our own strength or our own spiritual acumen, reliant on the right-handed grasping sort of power of the world rather than the left-handed upside-down self-giving power of our crucified king? Are we ashamed of our weaknesses? Or are we embracing them as modes of expressing the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are we clutching to power and anxious because we live in a world where the church's worldly power is diminishing? Or are we seeing that as yet another opportunity to follow a humble and crucified king? The only thing I can say is that we need to learn to pray together and then listen, as Paul listened, that we might hear Christ say to us, my grace is sufficient for you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.